Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Catherine, and I'm joined tonight by my co-hosts, Ellie and Amanda. Hi, ladies. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. It's nice to hear you. I heard that there was uh, maybe some snowflakes up in your neck of the woods today, so there sure I hope was. Thanks, yeah. Cozy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, Unfortunately, and yes. Our, our our Miss Jean has the night off tonight, um, but it was, it's nice to hear her in the theme song there singing. So we're sending her some sober love across the airwaves. Mm-hmm. And so we're always trying to think of topics that are compelling to our listeners, but the heart of every show are our guests and their recovery stories. Everyone who participates on the show is a volunteer whose willingness to honestly share their experience, strength, and hope helps keep us all sober. So a few months ago, we experimented with an open format episode in the style of a speaker meeting where one guest shares their recovery story, and we got great feedback about it. So tonight, we're bringing it back to sobriety basics with another open speaker discussion. And so it's really my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Lisa. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Catherine. Thank you. So glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you for your for your service. Um, so why don't you just kick us off and tell us a little bit about your recovery story. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. Um, it is something that I really appreciate, appreciate about recovery and the program, just getting an opportunity to give back and, and do service. Um, I really didn't understand what that was when I first um got into the 12-step program, um, but now I recognize that it's an important part of my recovery and it, and it helps me um, feel like I'm, you know, really contributing to uh, what has really ultimately saved my life and existence. Um, so I've been uh, in the program for about three and a half years, and Prior to that, I was just thinking, you know, before I was getting ready to speak tonight about what it was like beforehand, and I think the first, um, the night before I actually came back to uh, my first meeting, um, I tried a couple times before, I'd I'd gone to treatment, um, nothing seemed to be working, Um, and I had a a terrible drinking binge um, where I was at a client conference and um, wound up not being able to present the next morning, um, you know, missed my flight back because I was so sick in the hotel, um, and just um, screwed up the weekend, um, you know, racing around to get back to my um, house and had some commitments with my family that I just wasn't prepared for. So, you know, I got back... And it was Sunday night, and you know, similar to uh, to tonight. In fact, 
I was so scared about how I was going to go back to work, how I was going to be able to stop drinking because I was completely out of control. I felt like a complete fraud because I had lied to my coworkers and my boss about why I didn't go to the conference that day. Um, you know, I was now going to have to face them back at the office. You know, I'd lied to my family about why, you know, I wasn't able to do what I had planned to do for them. And I just felt like I was completely out of control and I was scared to death. I just, I did not know what to do. And I had been to meetings before and I'd gotten 90 days and I just could not keep it together. Um, I kept struggling thinking, well, if I could get 90 days or if I can stop drinking for a period of time, then maybe I'm not an alcoholic. And it took me Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of time to... um, to really accept that. I mean, it was probably a matter of, you know, I mean, I started, I actually went to treatment in um, 2007 and I didn't actually get sober until um, 2011. So back and forth, back and forth, um, trying, you know, various concoctions and various ways to try to get to a point where I was um, committed to recovery. So, you know, I did make it back to that meeting, and I think the difference that time was that I was just truly ready. I um, recognized some people that I had met before, and, you know, I was I was actually stunned by a friend of mine who, you know, probably less than six months before he was unemployed, he just looked like he was, you know, really struggling, and now he was speaking and leading the meeting, and he just looked great. He had wearing a suit, he had a good new job, and he was just giving me a huge hug, and I was like, wow, what happened to him? And when I talked with him, you know, later that week, he's like, well, I've just been going to meetings, and I could not believe the transformation, and I was like, you know, I need something else in my life, and I that really inspired me to, to stay and keep coming back. Um, I also got a sponsor, um, and that was the first time I'd ever asked anyone to help me. Um, The hardest thing that, you know, I guess the hardest aspect of this for me is really, you know, been letting go of, you know, my need to control things and my need to solve problems. Um, You know, it was the first problem in my life that I could not solve on my own, and I've had to ask for help and I mean, it's made a tremendous difference in just about every aspect of my life. And sitting here, like, three and a half years later, my life is so much different. I, um, you know, I was able to, um, you know, repair a lot of the um, relationship damage that I'd caused in my family. Um, My friends and I now have a much more honest and open relationship. I've been able to be there for friends, not only in the program, but also um, uh, for my family. Um, it's I just feel so much different about how I approach things. Um, my job, which has been like a source of angst, I used to drink at my job, saying it was like so painful. And, you know, if you had my job and you had my life, I was traveling around um, as a consultant. So I was away from home you know, in planes, in airports, in hotels, you know, and it was a lonely existence. And so I used to blame that for a lot of my drinking. Well, now I'm traveling and I actually have found 
um, you know, a lot more enjoyment in my job um, because of the way that I approach each day and try to help people on my team versus um, personalize everything and, and make it about me. So, um, you know, each day I've, I continue to try to um, learn something new and apply the principles of the program to um, my everyday um, activities and and somehow it works. I mean, I guess I was expecting like some immediate transformation, but truly like over the past three years, it's been a slow progression. And I have to say that, you know, each day, month, year, things seem to improve. Um, you know, I certainly have had some hardships. I've, um, you know, gone through personal relationships and breakups and, um, my father had passed away this past March and, you know, things are, life is still hard and, you know, it's not going to be perfect just because I am sober and in recovery. But what's amazing to me about it is that I don't have to drink over these things when they happen and I don't get so angry and bent out of shape that it destroys a relationship or a friendship or, you know, creates more angst within my family and I'm not there for them. Um, so I try to use the tools of the program instead and, you know, listening to other people and taking their suggestions actually works. Um, I learned that I'm not the person that knows everything, which was hard for me to admit, but <laughs> I, uh, I certainly have, um, gained a tremendous amount and, and, and also gained a tremendous amount of friends that I have really true relationships with now and that are honest and open. And I feel like I'm actually becoming me after, you know, 41 years of not really knowing who I was, frankly, and being afraid to let other people know who I was. So that is uh, a little bit about my recovery. Well, I have to say that there's, you know, there there's this saying in recovery meetings that, you know, look for somebody that you can say, I want what they have. And that's what I always think about you, Lisa, you know, I want what you have. And I heard you sort of tell that same story when you mentioned the guy that you knew at a meeting. And, you know, that's one great thing. We're always talking on the show about the importance of, getting to know other people in recovery and building a community because that's that's part of the power of this is when we share stories, you can look and say, wow, you know, look at that person's transformation. You know, what is he doing? What is she doing? I want that because I know I don't feel like that. Um, that's amazing. And, you know, we get a lot of questions from people who are wondering, am I an alcoholic? And I, I really heard that come through in your story where you sort of felt like, oh, you know, okay, I've got 60 days, 90 days, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Um, you know, talk a little bit about that 2007 to 2011 time frame because I think a lot of us had different variations of that, right, where we're trying to wrestle with the idea. Um, what were some of the justifications and kind of what what did bottom feel like to you? And you know, when you say you were truly ready, what did that, if a listener's out there thinking, well, how do I know if I'm truly ready? Like, what did that feel like to you? 
Um, I think it was, I mean, during that time, so I had gone to treatment in 2007, and um, I came out, and I was just, you know, absolutely like I was going to just white-knuckle it. I wasn't going to go to meetings because I was, you know, I just wasn't like any of those people that were in meetings, which, you know, I had no idea because I'd never been to an actual meeting outside of the treatment um, center. And, um, but you just knew, right? I just knew right. that I wasn't going to... I mean, I had no clue how a meeting was going to help me, right? I mean, I, I did go to a counselor for, you know, six months or so. Um, and then I, I ended up moving to New York um, about that time, about six months after I had gotten out of um, treatment. And, um, and uh, at that point, I... You know, I I guess I was in a situation where, you know what, I needed just some wine to feel comfortable. It was like a dinner, and I was a little stressed out about it. So I had a glass of wine, and I remember being scared, like I was going to instantaneously combust by drinking this wine. (laughs) I hadn't drank for, like, you know, a period of time there. And, And then I didn't, you know instantaneously combust and I had just that glass of wine but then you know a few weeks later when the opportunity came up again I ended up getting just smashed and I couldn't stop and it was the amazing part was like even though my addiction had been kind of stagnant for that period it just like came immediately back full force Mm -hmm. and and then, you know, then I was like, okay, I'm going to stop again. I'm going to stop, you know. And I would go through this cycle of like, okay, I'm not going to drink. And it would be like four to six weeks. And then I just couldn't take it. And I would just go off a deep end. And it would be mostly like just drinking with friends or I wouldn't, I would be out with friends and I wouldn't drink the whole time. And then I'd get home and I would drink like two or three bottles of wine. And then I would miss the next day of work. And I'd be like, oh, I must have eaten something bad. And no one saw me drinking, so no one, who knows, everyone knew, I'm sure. But I just kept going through that cycle, and nothing really bad, I mean, bad in the sense that I didn't, um, well, I I ended up ultimately um, getting called into detox once, um, but I didn't, you know, have a DUI and get arrested for anything like that. I, um, you know, I didn't, I was able to keep my job somehow. You know, I was very fortunate that my boss actually um, had helped me get into treatment by, you know, letting me take time off. Um, so I was always at this point where I'm like, well, it's not so bad. It's just me that I'm hurting. When really I didn't mm-hmm. recognize how, all the pain I was causing my family and friends. And I think the point that I was so scared was that I really felt like I had tried so hard and that trip that I went to, I stayed in a hotel away from everybody. I came in a day later so I wouldn't be there the night before the conference started so that, you know, because I knew that would be a night that everyone was going to party. And I felt like I have tried every which way to stop and I just couldn't, and I knew I just could not keep up the charade anymore. I was just, like, physically and emotionally just completely exhausted, and I was just like, I need help. I just can't keep doing it. 
and it was just so much fear. Like, I, I really did not know what to do. And and thank God, like, I was dating somebody at the time, and he walked me to the meeting in the morning, and he, he would wait, make me get up and walk me to the meetings almost every morning for weeks. And I'm so grateful that he cared enough to do that. Um, and I, I guess it was just the time. I, it wasn't like some big white light thing happened, but I can literally picture myself right now laying in that bed in the morning going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I'm going to work today. I'm so embarrassed. What are, what are people going to say? And yeah. I just ended up going to a meeting, and that was it. This is Ellie. I, I'm so moved by your story. I identify with so much of what you talk about. And um, it's interesting. I went to, the, to treatment for the first time in 2007 also and um, sort of reluctantly went to meetings afterwards because I didn't really know what else to do. I had tried everything on my own. Um, I'd be curious to sort of hear, as somebody who resisted the idea of meetings at first, like what what sort of transformation happened for you when you went to meetings? Like what surprised you? What was what you expected? What wasn't what you expected for somebody who might be also on the fence um, with either trying to stop drinking or thinking of experimenting with, with um, recovery meetings? What was your experience like in the early days of, of actually attending meetings? Um, I think my my hesitancy for going to meetings was that I didn't feel like I was like anyone that was in a meeting because I had this perception of what an alcoholic was. And it certainly wasn't, you know, someone that had a professional job that was able to, that, you know, still had a family that, you know, I guess was somewhat speaking to them. And, you know, I was picturing somebody else, I guess. But what I was so awestruck by the meetings was that it was, there were just normal people and they were like myself and even if there was somebody there that maybe didn't look like me or, you know, wasn't from where I was from, we all had so much in common and I felt like every single thing somebody said I could relate to or I had felt that way and I'd never heard anyone say something that I could relate to so much before. Um, I think part of the reason why the meeting was so helpful to me was that um, the meeting was one day a week they have a speaker, and then the subsequent days of the week they have um, a round robin, and there's a reading from one of the uh, conference-approved literature, and um, it's about a topic and everybody goes around the room and talks for a few minutes about, you know, what they think about the topic. And getting to hear from so many different people, I think, helped me connect with, you know, all the various people in the room, and I got so many different perspectives. Um, I just didn't know that people felt the way I did. Mm, Like, they didn't feel that, like, loneliness and fear and felt overwhelmed and scared, like, all the time. And I used alcohol Mm -hmm. to hide from that. And I didn't realize that other people felt that way, frankly. Yeah, this is Catherine. I I had such the same experience when I first got sober and I thought, I'm alone in my shame. I'm alone with this fear. You know, I'm alone with all these consequences 
from my drinking and and things that I did and just how how I could be such a competent person in kind of every other area of my life and yet once I had that one glass of wine everything was out the window I didn't care I could not stop and I didn't know that other people had all of those feelings not just about drinking but kind of everything and it was such a relief to go to recovery meetings, read sobriety blogs and memoirs, um, you know, participate in online chat discussions about recovery and saying, oh, my gosh, like, I'm not alone. That was unbelievable. And that was such a great uh, release valve, I found, for me. Like you were describing, you would stay sober for you know, several weeks, and then it would all become too much to handle because you were white-knuckling it and didn't have a release valve. And I had that experience, you know, as well. Um, and it's it's that's, very unexpected. That's a really powerful part of your story, Lisa, and also what you described, Catherine, too, is the difference between, and it's such a hard thing to articulate just people who haven't experienced it, but the difference between trying to stay sober or at least dry, you know, not drinking on mm-hmm. our own versus within a community and how, at least in my own experience, one of the things I wanted to touch upon with your story, Lisa, is, um, you know, and it's something I identified with, so forgive me, I don't mean to speak for you, but it kind of, it really resonated with me about the idea of, um, you know, being so competent and capable in every other aspect of our lives except for this particular one and, kind of sheer force of will or fighting it and kind of, um, you know, trying to stay away from alcohol on my own. The only person I have offering me guidance is myself. And 90% of the time, that's a that's an asset for me because in the work mm-hmm. world or in other areas, that, that pays off for me. I'm pretty competent. But then when it came to recovery, you know, being a fighter or somebody who's likes to be in control of things was actually a liability and it was a very lonely place to be to not have alcohol i lost my anesthesia but i also mm-hmm. um you know didn't really have any place to turn to get that sense of community and you know i think willingness is such a huge part of people getting into sobriety and getting into recovery and it's such a strange dichotomy it's a it's a different difficult concept to explain to people about how you know what surrender is like getting out of our own way or finding a way to be willing um to kind of take our hands off the wheel and it sounds like that may have been a big part of your story also that's something that makes sense to you can you describe a little bit like about what that felt kind of like surrendering to the idea that this was bigger than you are oh yeah it definitely was a big part it was almost like yeah, I, I did surrender because I just was like, I feel like every, like you described, it's like everything I've ever done in my life, if I worked hard enough and if I had the willpower to do it, I was able to do it. And I just, that willpower and that same method for overcoming this did not work. Mm-hmm. And I fought and fought and fought and I was just so exhausted. I just was like, Okay, I give up. I just I give up. I don't know what to do. And and I know that's how I walked into that room that last time. And it was the same meeting I'd been going to for ninety days, right? And then six months later I came back. It's just the difference in my attitude was that I 
don't I think in the first ninety days I didn't get to know anyone. I didn't have that sense of community. I heard the stories, but I didn't really hear them. I didn't stay after and talk to people. I didn't try to get to know um them outside of, you know, the meeting and I didn't really share anything about myself very deeply or I wasn't quite I was still scared because I wasn't at my wit's end, I guess. But I know that, I don't know, I am right now. I don't, even if, like, there are still times times where I'm like, well, gosh, I've made it this far. Am I really an alcoholic? And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Okay, if I go back to three and a half years from now, even if I'm not an alcoholic, do I want to go back there? No way, no way. I definitely (laughs) don't want to go back there. And I know that what I'm doing now is working. And that keeps me from drinking basically one day at a time. That's such a huge thing. We've had this conversation before on the show about the, you know, am I or aren't I an alcoholic and that, you know, that damn word, alcoholic, and it carries Mm -hmm. a stigma with it. And your story is such a... Now, what what you just said really is powerful because it's sort of like it. I've said to myself before and to other people, like, I don't really care what it's called. I know what it is, that feeling, that hollowed out feeling, that emptiness and that loneliness of, um, you know, living that double life or feeling like you're cheating on yourself, you know, that kind of drinking without our own permission. You know, it doesn't really matter what it's called or what stigma is carried with it. The difference between how we feel on the inside of recovery and how we feel as an active alcoholic is just... It's, Incomparable. Yeah, I know this is Catherine, and I I know that I didn't. I've said this before on the show. I I don't, I don't think I called myself an alcoholic for the first few months. I just, I just figured, okay, enough with worrying about the word. Mm-hmm. I'll figure that out later. But all I knew was I I couldn't moderate, and it was getting worse. You know, there was I had no two years had really accelerated um, my drinking, which I really did not think was a disease. I thought it was something that I could just power through and control. And and then when I had some sober time, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) I, I can't have one glass of wine. It doesn't compute. It's never ever going to work for me. If even if it works today, you know what? Like tomorrow or the next day or the next day, it's it's not going to work. It's mm-hmm. something's going to go off the rails. And what was helpful is that I was interacting with all of these sober people, particularly sober women who were like me. And I was like, oh, you know, and they're calling themselves alcoholics rather freely and I identify with them exactly but Mm -hmm. it wasn't really important for me I guess is what I'm saying to decide that the label was right for me and I still got sober and then (laughs) adopted the label later when I was like oh yeah if it walks like a duck (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and the relief is so profound. I mean, it's it's. I, I don't know. Huge. For me, the experience of finally being within a community of sober people, and you know, these these unbelievable, like you said, Catherine. For me, it was mostly women, also, but men too. That I had such admiration and respect for their courage and their honesty and their openness. And you know, they're all calling themselves alcoholics, and they're some of the most amazing people I've ever met. It became a club that I felt kind of honored to be part of, as opposed to something I ran from, thinking that it was going to ruin my life. Yeah, and I have, mm-hmm. I have sort of a, this is a little bit of a tangential question, but something I just thought of when you said that you you recognized people when you went back to the meeting, and then you said, I saw a guy I knew, and, and I, I think the way I picked up on the way you described it was that he was a friend, and maybe you meant he was a friend from other recovery meetings, but was he somebody that you knew from outside of the recovery community? And then, no, and then he was there? No, actually, I had, um, yeah, it was actually someone that I had met probably about 10 months before. So let's say, like, he was, he had come to the rooms and um, I had started, you know, my 90-day counts and I got 90 days. And I remember his stories and they just broke my heart just about his family and his job and all of these things. And he just looked so downtrodden and hopeless and yet he came back every day and shared openly and honestly and you know I had left and I was still then when I returned you know six months later I was still at the same place that I was you know six months prior and I could not believe the change in his you know appearance his attitude his he just seemed so much lighter and and only that six month period of time and I just I just witnessed like such a difference in him and you know people were excited to see me and I would had been scared to come back you know since I went out and yeah I did I try to I actually get I was going to say I did try to get 90 days on my own without coming back so I wouldn't feel so I wouldn't have to count days but I couldn't do it so I just gave up and came back mm. <laughs> Um, This is Amanda, and I love how you talked about how you have a vivid image of that day when you were, you know, just lying in bed and you surrendered. And I know, you know, for me, um, especially early on and still today, like any time I might think that, you know, I got this or something like that, which I tend not to think because... Um, but, you know, just rewinding, the, <laughs> I have some pretty good damage, but, you know, um, but just rewinding the tape, and I love how you said, you know, I just never want to feel that way again. It's like, you know, when we start to think, okay, I'm better, maybe I can drink okay. Um, you know, just rewinding that tape helps so much. Um, but I, what I, I wanted to ask you about or ask you to describe a little bit more, something that really resonated with me is that, and you've kind of talked about it, that whole concept of, you know, getting a sponsor and finally asking someone for help. That was something that um, before I got into recovery, I was virtually incapable of um, asking people for help. And just because I was, you know, like you said, always able to do things on my own, like, you know, I'm, I'm able to tackle any other challenge in my life. Why can't I tackle this? And um, I found, you know, like you said, um asking for help from a sponsor, and also sharing at um, discussion meetings, which are 
my favorite where, you know, people you pick a topic and you get someone's perspective on something. You know, there was this one um, meeting that I went to where they would let someone at the meeting pick the topic. And I was always throwing out suggestions because it would be like, okay, this is what I need help with today. Um, <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, can can you guys all give me my therapy? But it was it was great getting other people's perspectives on things, you know, like you said. But so, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you know asking for help changed, and you know, I guess how that has helped you? Because I think that's hard yeah, for a lot sure. of people. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it definitely was hard for me. Um, I mean, I was. I grew up in a family where I was the oldest of four kids and, you know, there's a big age gap difference between me and my youngest um, sibling. My brother is like 11 years younger than me. So I was always like the, you know, pseudo parents around the house where I was always responsible for things. So I've kind of taken that same approach to everything I do, whether, you know, it's outside of work or just in my life. And so, um, you know, I had uh, I talked to a woman in the room a couple times, and then, you know, I asked her. She had asked me if I wanted to meet for coffee, and then we met and we were talking. And I was, you know, I finally asked her if she would, um, you know, help me go through the steps and be my sponsor. And I felt weird asking her, and it took me a while just to get comfortable calling people, just you know, at, mm-hmm. you know reaching out to people to talk to them because I felt like I was bothering people or if I was feeling scared or, like, afraid of, like, the night or, like, Friday night was coming, oh, my God, what was I going to do? I was was a little bit afraid to um, reach out to people initially. And so text messaging was very helpful because at least you could check and see if somebody was free, if they wanted to talk or get coffee, and that was a little less intimidating for me. Um, and so it took me time, but I realized that each time I did it, it was easier and easier. And, you know, my sponsor had suggested that I call people and that helped me kind of get out of my fear. Um, but what I found then too, that so much of my anger and resentment that had built up over time was because I always felt like I had to do everything on my own. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so... Once I started asking people for help, whether it was at work or my sisters or my mom or anyone or my friends, you know, they were, like, so fine with helping. They just never thought, like, I needed help. (laughs) It was very strange because some of my friends were like, well, you just always kind of know what to do, so we just let you do it. (laughs) I'm like, but I don't want to all the time. So, so that's I've learned a really, that's a really important point too, Lisa, because I think you know the conversations I've had with people who are trying to get sober or considering ways to get sober. I mean, at least in my experience, all the fears that I had of what was going to happen to me if the world knew my dirty little secret and I had it all worked, all the awful was all worked out in my head. You know, I could offer right. it. The cows came home, and mm-hmm. and honestly, it did not come to fruition. I mean, as I dug further into some of the issues behind my drinking and some of the relationships, and you know, way down the road after I had some sober time, there were some strained relationships that I needed to repair and some amends that I needed to make, but. When it came to the process of getting sober and asking for help and reaching out to the people in my life, people were 
way more supportive than I ever could have imagined. And, you know, sort of that idea that people were willing to help me as long as I was willing to help myself, but they they couldn't help me unless I asked and then accepted mm-hmm. the help. Um, I think that, that that resistance that we have for asking for help, for a lot of women in particular, because it's just, you yeah. know, kind of the way we're hardwired, is that we're supposed to be able to do it all and do mm-hmm. it on our own and, and handle it all. And the stigma for women, female alcoholics, is, you know, it's pretty strong. Um, but I very, very rarely, if ever, have heard someone say, yeah, you know, my life fell apart when everybody found out that I was an alcoholic. And um, so that's, a, I think, a really important point to talk about, that 99% of our fears never come true, you know, that yeah. asking for help, people really do step up. And those who don't, you know, maybe they're part of the reason, part of the problem. Maybe there's not people that we need in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, and and then also, point... the... sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead, Ellie. I was going to say that also sometimes what I, the other sometimes painful lesson is that the people that I had been trying to get help from, um, and in other ways, not even necessarily with alcohol or, or drinking, but that are incapable of helping me, they, I needed to go find other people in a recovery community that could be, I mean, these virtual strangers that become the ones who help me the most. Mm-hmm. That is it's okay, or I learned it was okay to cut some of the ties that I had that I thought were supposed to be stronger and take those problems that only other people who have a similar struggle can understand. And so it wasn't necessarily that that I was going to the wrong people for help, but I was taking a problem that those people couldn't understand, and the recovery community stepped in and really bolstered that part of it. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think it's it's um, one of the reasons why it's hard to do on our own because people who aren't alcoholics really don't understand the way that we think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I found that, you know, over the years, I recognized that, you know, I seemed to be the one that was waking up with a disaster on her hands. And I would, you know, talk to my friends. They didn't get why I couldn't stop. They just were like, why don't you just stop, you know? They didn't Mm -hmm. get it at all. (laughs) So until I found a community that understood that same feeling, I I just, no one was able to help. It's a very lonely place to be, yeah. Yeah. And this is Catherine, I was going to say, you know, Lisa, you said that so much anger and resentment was built up around this trying to control everything, and that really resonates with me. And what I've been exploring is, what the fear was underneath all that anger and resentment and that need to do everything on my own. Like I have to keep up the appearance of being okay Hmm. as a human being, like to validate my existence. I had to control everything because I didn't trust anything about the world. I didn't trust that anyone was going to come through for me. And as I found in a recovery community, I mean, they were just there. I mean, people were just mm-hmm. there no matter how I showed up, how much how much of a mess. So suddenly I'm learning, oh, okay, I, there are people I can trust and who will be um who will be there for me no matter how ugly my emotions seem to be as they're coming out. Um and then I realized, you know, back to your point where you said because I used to think this too, oh, I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me. Well, when I'm closed off and when I'm feeling like I'm just going to do everything myself, 
I don't give anybody like my partner or my family or my friends the opportunity to have emotional intimacy with me because I'm taking away any of that opportunity for them. And so mm-hmm. that's that's not an obvious consequence of alcoholism, but it's it's one that's appeared for mm-hmm. me. And I, I've realized in my marriage, you know, this is something that we have to work on. You know, he's sitting there like, hey, I'd like to be able to contribute and participate. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If, you, if you would stop being so walled off, <laughs> so yeah, I I've that experienced that in, in recovery too. I had a few years of recovery, and I started to get away from a recovery program. I got away from meetings and away from this, you know, this outlet that you described, Catherine. And I, one of the first signs that I could have seen that things weren't heading in the right direction was that emotional wall I put up. I stopped. Mm. You know, I, it's almost like a muscle that I have to exercise, the asking for help and the letting people in. And, you know, ha- having a regular program of recovery helps me do that. And when I get away from that, the first thing that comes back to me is that emotional control. I call it emotional perfectionism. Mine and everybody else's, you know, that I have to make sure everybody around me is, is okay and myself. And um, the program yeah. is the opposite of that. It's a, you know, it, it's letting people in as opposed to pushing them away. I just had a mental vision of Amanda rebuilding her fireplace and what was what were all those home projects, Amanda, that you said? <laughs> oh my god. It built a patio anybody for help. Yeah. No. I did so much on my own. I actually got stuck on my roof one time because I went up to fix something on the roof and I was on um a step ladder versus a extension ladder, so you're not supposed to do that. Anyway, yeah. And so I had to stand on the tippy top step and climb onto the roof, and then I needed to get down, and my husband had just left. <laughs> oh, there's I never so much irony in that story. <laughs> and then my dog hurt her, hurt himself, and I needed to get down, and the the ladder was wobbly, and I had no one to hold it, and I was like running. I was in a panic, and my neighbor saw me, and I had to like let him in through the garage. <laughs> And it, like yeah, tell him the code to my them. garage, and he he came through and held the ladder for me. But I mean, I was that stubborn, and and yeah. I do believe that my higher power—that's why I lost my license for 17 months because I had to be trained and beaten mm-hmm. into asking for help. Because uh, there was—I yeah. don't—I seriously, if I had my license, I don't know if I—I I don't know if I was capable. I, I was I was virtually incapable of asking for help before I got into recovery. Now I do it all the time. I have a problem. I'm like, I raise my hand at a meeting, and then I'm like, and I just I just say what's on my mind, and it's it's so cool. It's, it's, it makes such awesome. a difference. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'd like to put a plug in too for having both men and women in our recovery communities too. I I don't know why this is just occurring to me, but you know, there's there's definitely value in communing with, you know, in this case, all women. But, um, you know, personally, I have found that um, very useful to be in co-ed meetings because I, I really groove on seeing men being vulnerable and asking for help. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, yeah. you know, that's not something you really see in society all the time, right? So it's like, oh, wow, look at them. And then they're being um, open and honest and willing with me and not in a creepy way, 
you know, because I was always sort <laughs> uh-huh. of wary and like spider senses. And so I always like to advocate for making sure your recovery community is, you know, balanced in that way because, you know, women hold up half the sky and men hold up the other half. So it's nice yeah. to have, have both. Yeah, I think that was definitely helpful because I don't think I'd ever seen, like you said, I haven't seen men behave, like, vulnerably or honestly, and I didn't realize that they had similar challenges um, with addiction or um, relationships and just, you know, intimacy and all of those things. It just I didn't understand that perspective, and it yeah. helped me, um, you know, and it was, I guess, thing that surprised me the most about the meetings was both having both men and women like just asking me how I was for no other reason than just to to be kind and mm-hmm. not having people with ulterior motives like you said with you know with men sometimes I would have that fear that like there's this, some other ulterior motive and I feel like it's helped me build a little more trust and mm-hmm. feel less afraid of, you know, somebody taking advantage of me. And mm-hmm. so that was a big aspect of, of what I've been learning as right. well. So let's let's also talk about, you, you mentioned that life can still be hard and throw us curveballs and losses and um, you know, we did we did a whole program on grief of you know experiencing big grief in sobriety, um, and you said I don't have to drink over it, and that's a huge lesson that I think I know. Before I got sober, I never would have thought that the hard stuff of life would have been possible without alcohol. So, what are some of the things that you think you utilize some sobriety tools that you employ to stay sober during those uh, challenging times? Well, I've, um, you know, I guess I've been really fortunate. Um, I think there's been a couple of things. I, um, you know, when I first got sober, I was um, living with someone and we were in a relationship and, you know, I knew that it wasn't ultimately going to work out and you know after I was had gotten sober um probably within about nine months um we ended up splitting up and he moved out and um and it was really hard you know I was afraid I was that was that fear and the loneliness creeped in and I mean I was so fortunate that like I had you know, the meetings to go to every day so I could check in with my sponsor and other people in the meetings. I could get out of my own head by being at a meeting and thinking about others. You know, mm. I I also, um, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is, I guess, supplement my recovery program, with you know, from a 12-step perspective, but also have um, added, you know, therapy to my program and you know I it took me a couple people to find the right therapist but you know at that time I started seeing someone and it helped me just to talk through what I was going through from an emotional perspective and um, you know just to kind of get it out and just you know 
again, it was like another step in asking for help and saying, like, I mm-hmm. can't get through this on my own. Um, and I tried to remember that, like, if I drank, the problem is still going to be there. I'm still going to feel loneliness and sadness. And what I realized after tackling these things, being sober, was that the sadness does eventually pass. And if I, you know, go to a meeting instead of staying home and sulking and being sad and alone and connect with somebody else, you know, I'm going to feel better. If I call somebody and see how they're doing, I'm going to get out of my head even if it's only for a few minutes. Um, But I used to do things like call my sponsor and she'd say, okay, well, go, you know, what do you want to do? And I'd figure out something to do. And she was like, okay, call me back in, you know, two hours or an hour. And I would just, you know, if if thing, days were really hard, I would continuously check in with somebody, um, you know, just to make sure that I was, you know, on a good path for the day. And um, when my dad passed away in March, um, the thing that I kept thinking about was I wanted to be there for my mom and I wanted to be there for my sisters and my brother and I wanted my dad to be proud of me for helping everyone get through it. And I didn't know... I knew, like, drinking was just not going to be... It was, it was, like, the last thing on my mind, frankly. It it really was. I was exhausted. I was emotionally just drained. But I knew, like, just me being there for my mom and staying with her was what I needed to do. And so I, uh, you know, it helped me get through it. I, I would get up and try to go running or we would go for long walks for a few days and just try to, I don't know, do anything except, you know, sit idle and think. I guess when I get in my own head, that's that's the dangerous place to be. Yeah. I heard a guy at a 12-step meeting this morning say, my sponsor said, I'm never going to ask you how you're feeling. I'm always going to ask you what you're doing because your actions always correlate to your feelings and I was Mm. sort of like whoa Mm. because then believe you me I didn't want to go there this morning I was tired I wanted to stay in bed I was feeling overwhelmed and blue and depressive (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I went anyway and then it was like, oh, okay, and everything that you just described is service, right? You know, like reaching out and connecting with somebody, being of service to your mom or to your family, um, you know, showing up and listening to other people and what they have going on and being present for them. I mean, that's all it, it gets us out of. I think Anne Lamott calls it like the bad neighborhood of her mind. mind. <laughs> 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 I think another thing that's so powerful about that is, and I also experienced, I mean, I experienced the loss of my dad in sobriety also, but I, um, you know, now I'm recently going through a separation and some harder things in my life from a relationship standpoint. And the biggest difference that I see is that 
it's not just the being part of a community and being of service and getting out of my own head, but it's also I'm experiencing my feelings. I'm present not only for the other people in my life, but also for myself. And so, you know, boy, I, do I I feel those feelings. They're not not many of them are pleasant, but I notice the healing, like a slow knitting of my emotions back together again because I'm not going around them. You know, in the mm-hmm. past when I drank through or, you know, I've also, after my dad died, I went into sort of a full-on workaholism mode, which is another form of avoidance. You know, when I try to go around these hard things, I, I don't actually ever come out on the other side of them. I stay stuck. And mm-hmm. by being yeah. present in our own lives, um, you know, with the help of lots of other people, I get to the point where I can I can feel the healing happening. Of course, it's not happening as fast as I want it to or on my own terms, but it's happening because it, it, I'm not trying to avoid it. And, um, you know, I have my share of pity parties where I think, well, I would do anything not to feel this right now. But like you said, Lisa, you know, I know it will pass because I didn't mm-hmm. try to avoid it. And um, that's a really, that's a, that's a, my friend calls those turd gifts. You know, a gift you don't really want, but it's <laughs> one that does, it does help you grow. <laughs> yeah, I, I never realized that feelings actually pass. Like, I didn't get that concept. Yeah. I'm like, they I'm so you, mad. They feel like they will. Right, right. And I didn't realize that eventually I would not feel mad or sad. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's, that's this such Amanda, an Amanda, you know when... Ahead, oh, I was just going to say, Catherine, I use your your um, I use your tool all the time. Like, I get these like awful feelings sometimes, and I know it's all in my head. And I'm like, is that true? That's not true. I'm like, and <laughs> that, true. That, true, that, not true. Is that true? That is so helpful. Like when you're having these feelings, because most of the feelings, bad feelings that I have, are, are I make them up. You know, mm-hmm. you certainly there's other things where you definitely have bad feelings, but most of them are all in my head. It's, um, yeah, well, I used to call my like sponsor, and I, the feel... first thing I'd say is, real or not real? And I'd describe yeah. the situation for her, and she'd have to literally clarify to me what parts of it were fact and what parts of it were just inflated, because I didn't know the difference. Hmm. It's absolutely true. And even, like, yesterday, I was really feeling like, oh, my gosh, I've hit the wall. I've done it again. I've burned myself out, and all I want to do is just crawl under the covers and stay there. And I said to my husband, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm drowning in anxiety. I, I just, I, I did it again. I burned myself out. And he said, okay, okay, have you eaten today? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, oops, <laughs> like, not really. <laughs> and mm-hmm. even just that little, again, we, we always talk about halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired being our big triggers, and if we watch for those. So even that, it felt so real that I was just swimming in anxiety and consumed with it. And here we go again. And it was like, oh, all I need to do is have a sandwich. Have a sandwich. You know, and then and then we and we did. We ate, and I was like, wow, I feel fantastic. This is great. And he's like, yeah, we're we're getting there. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yep. So we're we're actually awesome. rounding out the hour. It it always amazes me how fast these conversations go and and how much they they lift me up at the um you know every Sunday night. And so as we're kind of coming to a close, I'd love to sort of 
just go around and say what are some key takeaways that everyone has tonight. Ellie, how about starting with you? Wow, I, I Lisa, thank you so much. I really I resonated with your story. I identify with your feelings, and I really appreciate you being on the show. And one of the the most powerful messages that I got from you um, was to keep trying. I mean, one of the things mm. that you described so well was you know you went to treatment and you got some time, and this did you just kept changing something, one something, and being open to um, you know trying something different and keep coming back and going even going back to the same meeting after being gone for six months. That takes a lot of guts, but, you know, it's that bizarre balance between self-will and surrender, and um, you describe that very, very well, and I think that's a really, really powerful part of your story, so thank you. Thank you. Amen. Amanda, how about you? Um, well, I guess piggybacking on that, you know, I thought it was really interesting. And thank you, Lisa. Thank you for being on the show and sharing. And I was very moved by your story, too, and I identify a lot. Um, you know, um, one thing is, you know, where, you know, especially where you said, you know, you could handle everything in your life, but you just didn't know how to stop drinking. And that was, um, and so you surrendered, and I I had those exact same feelings. It was like okay, um, and so you listened to other people's advice, and and you did what they told you to do, even when you thought it was a little bit like, what are they talking about? Um, that all those things were so important to me because I I really I finally just resigned myself to you know I can figure out how to do anything in my life, but it. Um, how to get sober and kind of just giving up. It was just such a gift. And, um, oh, God, I had something else, too. I always do this. Um, but I, I got, uh, you know, asking for help. And, and I, I love, you know, just um, this whole conversation tonight. I feel like I, I'm just leaving a meeting, you know. And so yeah, it just too. shows. I feel really great, you know. I um, I didn't me have the too. best day. And, you know, I I... By the time my day wasn't going too well, I had missed the morning meetings, and and so I didn't, you know, go and do anything like that. And you know, just being on the phone, talking to you guys, hearing your story, Lisa, and hearing everyone else share, I feel great. So I'm gonna put my head on the pillow and sleep well tonight. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, so glad. Thanks. And mm-hmm. so Lisa, why don't you, uh, you know, round it out here for us? And uh, what's your key takeaway well i uh i guess from um it was a really good conversation i really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share tonight it did feel like a meeting um you know it only takes uh two alcoholics to have a meeting and i'm I'm sure like it was a good conversation for me um it really brought up you know kind of those early stages in my sobriety where I was, you know, questioning, um, you know, whether or not I was an alcoholic or not. And I really liked what you said, Catherine, about, you know, not necessarily putting a label on it, but really it's about, you know, how I feel and how I deal with life now that's changed. And people see the change in me now and, you know, they see that I've, uh, I'm doing better, and they don't necessarily know why. Many people don't necessarily know why, but it's really a good feeling when I hear, you know, positive things about what I'm doing now, and I'm not creating all this havoc anymore. So, 
it's nice to kind of talk through how I got to this point. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Thanks. Well, we're so grateful to to have you here. Um, You've really helped me a lot tonight, Lisa and uh, Amanda and Ellie, you as well. So thank you for your service, Lisa. And as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. And there you'll find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. If you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com. And there you can listen to our shows directly or follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. You'll also find a link to Jean's blog, Unpickled, as well as our email address, thebubblehour at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback about tonight's show format and any other topic suggestions. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you all have a great evening. Thanks, ladies. Good night. Thank you. Have a good night, everyone. Good Good night. Good night.